Hi, hello. Um, and thank, thank you, Jenna. Uh, thank you to uh, Penn State also and the McCourtney Institute for having me. Uh, I really wish that I could be there in person. I had a terrific time this morning talking with, uh, with Jenna at the Democracy Works podcast and um, also joining professional, Professor Eshelman's class. In fact, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but uh, being around young journalism students reminded me um, a little bit about why I love this job so much and why I was so uh, interested in going into the profession uh, as a very young person. I started when I was 20 and 21 years old. Uh, I think most people dream when they're young of either making a difference, making it big, or being wandering bards. And uh, for me, journalism uh, allowed you, I thought, to do two of the three. Uh, it was a job that uh, promised that it would pay you something, not very much, to go around the world and just tell people about the interesting things that you saw. And as an added bonus, if you did the job correctly, uh, it was an important public service. And both of those things were very attractive to me as a young person. And I've now been in the job for 30 years. And unfortunately, some of the things that I was so attracted to when I first entered the profession have changed quite dramatically. And that's, that's what I want to talk about today. Um, we live, I don't think this is a secret to anybody, we live now in a time of incredible political division in America. I think most people uh, have had the experience uh, recently, in the last few years especially, um, of not even being able to have an argument with, with people, uh, because once you enter an argument, you will find that you're not even debating the same commonly accepted set of facts. And this has a lot to do with changes in the structure of the business of the news media. In my lifetime, in the course of the 30 years I've spent in this job, uh, the core commercial strategy of the news media has changed uh, dramatically. And specifically, we've gone, uh, especially at the national news media or international news media level, we've shifted from trying to go after one big audience to instead looking at multiple smaller audiences and trying to capture and dominate those. Uh, and this has essentially led us to going from trying to sell a very broad product that appealed to everybody and that every, allowed everybody to speak the same language uh, and to instead going to a format where we're essentially selling division. And people have to understand that in addition to being a public service, the news is a business. So we are, it is a consumer product and we are selling something. And this has uh, dramatically affected the way that Americans think and talk about each other. So to understand how, how this works, I think the easiest way is to go back to the very beginning of the modern news era. Uh, ironically, uh, before the advent of modern technology and mass, the printing press, mass national newspapers and broadcast media, we had a system that was actually closer to what we have now that was more atomized. But with the advent of newspapers and radio in the 20s, uh, we shifted to something, to something new. In 1929, the first national news uh, radio broadcast was conducted by Lowell Thomas, who would become a, an iconic figure in the news media. Most people, whether they know it or not, have actually heard Thomas's voice. If you've ever seen those old World War II newsreels, it's usually Lowell Thomas's voice in the background. Uh, he became very famous as a newsreader. And he, uh, his national news radio program on CBS became instantly extremely popular. And, and uh, Thomas, who had a theatrical background and who had done one-man performances, uh, instantly realized that there was an enormous commercial potential in what he was doing uh, because he was getting all this mail and he was understanding how the audience was reacting to him. And this is a quote from, that he said uh, many years later. He said, I discovered quickly that my evening program was a perfect way to make listeners angry you could step on millions of toes at the same time. And just by talking about politics and uh, current events, he understood that people naturally got very agitated and he wanted to take advantage of that. In fact, he was so excited about this that he just uh, thought about publishing a book that he wanted to call Making Millions Angry. But the sponsors of CBS's radio program uh, really hated that approach. In fact, one of his 
main sponsors and one of the main sponsors of the show, which is a magazine called the Literary Digest, uh, ordered him to uh, avoid that approach entirely and to instead, quote, play things down the middle. His book publisher, uh, Funk and Wagnalls, did not like the title, Making Millions Angry, and instead ordered him to do a different title that was much less uh, agitating and, and much less colorful. They ordered him to call it just fan mail. Uh, and Thomas agreed, uh, and he committed to decades of doing a radio program with this down-the-middle instruction. And he became famous for his newsreels, which announced from the opening that they were seeking the widest possible audience. Uh, he always began by saying, good morning or good evening, everybody. Uh, today, we'd probably call this the uh, objective style of uh, news delivery. And it's important to understand that this was not about ethics. This was a commercial strategy. CBS and all the other news companies that came after it, they understood that the game was about attracting the largest possible audience and the advertisers uh, had to be able to court that audience. And their thinking was that once you started injecting political opinions into the news, it would uh, naturally shrink the number of people who would be receptive to that advertising. So they cut out the politicizing, they cut out the slant, and this uh, would become the template for news for about 50 years. Uh, news anchors from Lowell Thomas through people like uh, Dan Rather and Jessica Savage, uh, decades later, they learned to deliver the news in a monotonal, reserved voice, print journalism, uh, which is the business I went into. The standard format was to write in an even, unemotional, detached, third-person voice. Uh, you can still see vestiges of that style in some major daily newspapers, although it is shifting rather dramatically in the direction of more colorful blogger-style writing now. But for about half a century, the standard was unemotional, detached, even delivery. But beginning in the 80s and the early 90s, which was uh, coincidentally about the time that I started entering the news, uh, incidentally, I come from a family of journalists. My father was a television reporter uh, and had been in the business since he was um, 18 years old. So I grew up in the news media. And even before I entered the job, I had watched some of these changes happening. And in the 80s and 90s, there were three big things that happened to the news business that would change it uh, forever. The first one was the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. And this was, of course, brought in uh, first by CNN. The uh, original 24-hour broadcast began in 1981 and 1982. Uh, instead of there being one newspaper that would come out every morning, or in some cases, two newspapers, they had an evening edition, or two news broadcasts was standard for most uh, news outlets. You might have an evening news show and an 11 o'clock news show. In some cases, you had a morning show as well. But you were only making content a few times a day at the very most. The 24-hour news cycle changed all that. And even though CNN's original concept was just repeating loops of half-hour news broadcasts that maybe would change two or three times a day, eventually it evolved to become a continuous uh, live program that uh, broadcasted ongoing events. And this format put enormous stress on uh, news companies and on uh, people uh, at the reporter's level, at the reporting level, because we now had to create content uh, at a pace that we never had to before. And this was a purely logistical problem. You just could not make enough carefully reported content to fill every hour of every day. And news companies scrambled to figure out what they could put on television or what they could put on the wires to fill all that space. And one type of story that they quickly figured out worked quite well was to just put something visually interesting on screen and have reporters talk over it. Uh, and of course, you're, anybody who's watched the news is familiar with this. You might have a hurricane in the background a uh, classic cliche story was a baby down a well, 
in Los Angeles, they use the car chase quite a lot, a hostage situation, uh, the, the Kursk submarine, which sank to the bottom of the ocean. Um, all of these things were uh, great visual live news stories, and all you really needed to have was a person commenting on what was happening in the background. War was very useful in this respect from a commercial point of view. Uh, if you just had an anchor person talking over visual images of explosions in the background, this garnered enormous ratings. And that's why the first Gulf War in Iraq uh, became the first truly 24-hour uh, news story. But uh, there was only so much live uh, breaking news content you could create. You had to have something that was more scripted and more dependable. And the other uh, content that networks figured out that they could do that was very easy to make was just to put two people on a set together and have them argue about something. And this, the original shows that uh, used this format were shows like the McLaughlin Report on PBS. Uh, but the most famous, of course, was Crossfire, which began as an NBC radio program and moved to CNN. And this was a show that simplified politics for audiences, there were only two ideas shown. There was from the left and from the right. And um, basically what they would do was they would uh, have these two combatants on screen, an issue would be tossed between them, and you would just have two people like Pat Buchanan and Michael Kinsley arguing about something or tussling about a subject for a half an hour or so. And in between that argument, you would have maybe three or four blocks of ads. And this was very, very successful television. Uh, and so I just want to introduce the idea that A, news companies needed to generate lots and lots of comp content, and B, they figured out quite early on that arguing uh, and intellectual conflict was a very, very uh, profitable and productive uh, format that they could use. And they tended to, they experimented quite a lot with, the, with that idea. The second major change was the uh, introduction of the internet. And there were, there were a number of things that this did to the news business. Uh, most people don't understand that uh, newspapers and TV stations uh, for decades had almost guaranteed profits thanks to inherent distribution advantages. Newspapers, if you were a local a uh, daily newspaper like the Boston Globe or the, uh, the Dallas Morning News or the New York Times, Washington Post, those regional newspapers had their own distribution routes, their own trucks, their own distribution points, their own paper kids. If you were a business in that area and you wanted to put up a want ad or you wanted to advertise your product, the local newspaper was really the only show in town. So newspapers could charge enormous sums of money for those sorts of ads. One advertisements uh, single-handedly supported newspapers for generations and the internet really overnight destroyed that entire revenue base. Meanwhile, broadcast TV and radio stations, these were scarcity businesses. There were only so many licenses for each market. So a television station, there were maybe two or three in each market. Uh, radio stations, there were only so many on the dial. And so there was a very, very limited amount of broadcast commercial space. And that space was extremely valuable. And, and essentially, the stations could charge whatever they wanted for that airtime. Uh, as one former newspaper owner, uh, newspaper owner put it to me, uh, these businesses, it was they were essentially printing presses. It was almost impossible not to make money before the internet came along. The internet really essentially overnight eliminated distribution as part of the uh, commercial formula of the news business. Uh, worse, it introduced a whole torrent of new content that news companies now had to uh, compete with. They were now not only competing with each other, but with millions of independent voices. If you were a local TV news station, you weren't just competing with other news shows, but also with sites full of cat videos or Sasquatch uh, information or a thousand other things and sports sites and blogs. And so what I want to stress is that this went from a business where the money was incredibly easy to being a business where the money was incredibly hard to make. And suddenly there was all this 
financial pressure that had never existed before. And this prompted the third uh, change in the business, which involved introducing the use of political slant as a money-making strategy. In the uh, 60s and 70s uh, and the early 80s, there began to be a new forms of talk radio that were introduced um, in places like New York. There were disc jockeys, people like Alan Burke and Bob Grant. And these were afternoon shows for the most part. They were hunting big drive time audiences that tended to be working to middle class men. Uh, and these radio shows, which eventually evolved into to the shows that we're all familiar with now, like Rush Limbaugh type shows or Sean Hannity shows, um, these shows specifically targeted one political demographic and they were enormously uh, profitable at these radio stations. But it wasn't until the late 80s when um, under... Uh, in the Reagan administration, the Fairness Doctrine was eliminated, which um, basically uh, eliminated the mandate to provide some kind of balance and news programming for stations that were using the public airwaves. And that, combined with all these new economic pressures that I was talking about previously, uh, forced even big television stations and major newspapers to start thinking about the idea of using this um, proven bankable strategy of using political slant uh, as a way to make money because they were now desperate in ways that they were not before. And the first company that really took advantage of this was Fox. Fox, um, with their uh, famous news chair, Roger Ailes, in the early 90s, they, they changed the strategy of modern network news. Again, for decades, ABC, CBS, and NBC had all gone after essentially the same audience and had competed mostly with each other. Fox decided that they were not going to go after the whole audience, but they were instead going to identify uh, a demographic. And it was largely that same demographic that those conservative radio shows were going after, but it was slightly different. Um, Roger Ailes famously described Fox's audience as 55 to dead, uh, and he they decided to go after an older, uh, conservative, largely suburban and rural audience, and um, they essentially settled on a new formula, and rather than try to corral an increasingly splintering uh, news audience as the internet was atomizing the entire information landscape, um, they decided to just pick this one demographic and try to dominate it. And what they did is they just essentially fed that demographic streams of news stories that they thought would reinforce uh, the and validate the opinions that that older conservative demographic had. They tended to pick stories that uh, suggested that America was being um, was under attack, was being overrun by contagious forces. They did a lot of stories about immigrants and minorities and crime. Uh, these were scary to these older audiences, and they became sort of addicted to the experience of turning on the television, being frightened, and then watching a reassuring figure tell them how it was going to all be okay as long as they sided with this or that politician. Um, Fox really exploded to the top of the ratings with the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton story. Uh, and they really used the Clintons. Um, they, they used dramatic techniques to turn into these real life people into villains. They were less like uh, full developed balanced characters than cardboard uh, uh, sort of caricatures of, of bad guys and good guys, and the Clintons were prototypical uh, sort of conservative villains. They presented Hillary Clinton as this enemy of white picket suburban America who said that she would not bake cookies and she wasn't Tammy Wynette and didn't want to stand by her man, and they assaulted their audience with images of this threatening new lifestyle, and their audiences loved it, 
and Fox really uh, went to number one in the late 90s and did not leave the number one spot until the first year of the Trump presidency, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so since that moment in the early 90s, the quote-unquote objective um, news formula uh, that the news companies that always used the Lowell Thomas formula started to recede. And with the introduction of Fox into the landscape, it began a sorting process that uh, has not stopped to this day, where more conservative audiences drifted to one side and people who had different uh, views started to choose other channels. Uh, and there were some holdouts who tried to resist this demographic splitting, uh, but the, the new style of uh, money-making became more and more pronounced over the years. And then in 2016, and I uh, watched this firsthand because I was covering presidential campaigns by that point for Rolling Stone, uh, when Donald Trump introduced, uh, came onto the scene, that was when this phenomenon really started to explode. And I was on the campaign trail in the summer of 2015 when Trump first uh, went on the trail. And immediately uh, I started to hear reporters talk about a new dynamic that had been introduced into our business lives. There were really two things happening. The first thing that was happening was that Donald Trump was making everybody an enormous amount of money. And we just could not avoid the reality of this. If you worked at a television show uh, station and you were doing TV news, it was impossible not to notice that Donald Trump got you great ratings and it didn't matter how you covered him, whether you covered him negatively or positively uh, or down the middle, didn't matter. As long as you put Donald Trump on screen, it got great ratings. Same if you worked in print, it didn't matter what you said about Donald Trump, but whatever you wrote about him got tons and tons of clicks. Uh, and that was absolutely true compared to any other candidate. And if you look back at the coverage from that time, it's not hard to see how this impacted editorial decisions. CNN infamously showed a picture uh, of an empty podium uh, waiting for Trump to arrive rather than show an actual candidate talking about something because the ratings were higher waiting for Trump than they were for people watching an actual can a, a different candidate speak. When people went back and looked at the numbers, they found that during the primary season, Donald Trump got about 23 times as much coverage as Bernie Sanders did uh, on television. On the other side, which was fascinating because these were two very similar stories, uh, strictly from an objective point of view, they were both stories about insurgent campaigns who challenged the traditional bureaucracy of an entrenched party uh, bureaucracy. And yet Trump got this overwhelmingly larger amount of coverage than Sanders did, even though they were performing similarly early in the process. And this put media companies in a pickle because there was now a problem. They didn't know how to handle this, especially once Trump won the nomination or once he locked up the nomination, now there were all these conversations. What do we do? Do we continue taking the money? Uh, do we continue uh, bringing in all these ratings? Uh, how do we deal with this? Are we, are we responsible for giving him all this attention? Were we responsible for helping him win the nomination? Um, and is there, going forward, should we cover him less? What should we do? And uh, this, the answer that most news companies settled on was actually to cover him more than they had before, but to change their editorial approach and to just simply add more editorializing and more negative slant. Uh, so uh, this was presented as an ethical change. Uh, Jim Rutenberg of the New York Times in the summer of 2016 wrote a piece that was very influential called Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism. And he wrote that Trump was so dangerous that the job of journalism now is no longer just to be true, but to quote, be true to readers and viewers and true to the facts in a way that will stand up to history's judgment. Uh, and essentially this meant we had to be more aggressive in covering him uh, he quoted uh, the Carolyn Ryan, who was the senior editor for politics at the Times at the time. 
who said that the proper formula for this candidate was, quote, copious coverage and aggressive coverage. So just as much or more Trump, but more aggressive coverage of Trump. The Columbia Journalism Review later did a study that showed the coverage of Trump actually skyrocketed uh, and went sharply up beginning in early 2016 at precisely that moment I, I mentioned when all of us on the trail were talking about this dilemma, this uh, was a dilemma that was both a commercial dilemma and an ethical dilemma. Uh, the CJR also found that coverage of Trump became significantly less policy focused and more focused on his personality uh, as 2016 went on. And I want to stress that I, I don't have any problem with negative coverage of Donald Trump. In fact, I wrote quite a lot of it in 2016, but this created a problem. And the problem was that this new formula uh, that we had adopted of copious coverage and aggressive coverage, it fit perfectly into the commercial needs of the news business, of the corporate news business. Trump is basically the perfect modern media product. Um, and what do I mean by that? In you know, in the post-objectivity era, once Fox uh, shot up to the top of the ratings, media companies learned that there's a consistent, dependable way to make money. And the first thing you do is you identify your audience, then you relentlessly feed that audience streams of stories that validate the, your audience's belief systems. And the easiest way to attract an audience is to publish stories that prevent that present people that your audience does not like in a, neg in a negative light. And Fox did this again in the 90s and 2000s, and they were introducing a regular stream of foes for their audience to digest and to think about. And this was included terrorists and criminals. Uh, feminists were often presented as a, as a villain. Liberals, uh, during the Gulf War, the French became the villain. It was one, different cast of villains after another. And this was designed to scare audiences, uh, to enrage them, to agitate them, and addict them, again, to the experience of getting upset. When Trump arrived on the scene, it was now very easy to do this, not just to conservative audiences, but to liberal audiences as well. Media companies figured out that all they had to do to consistently make money was to wave Trump at people all day long. And so the arrival of Trump uh, on the scene in 2005 coincided and has coincided with a huge surge in profitability, especially for the cable news business. Uh, since Trump announced his run for the presidency in 2015, uh, cable news revenues are up 38%. Um, and this is a dynamic that everybody in the news business understands. Conversely, uh, when you wave a, uh, a villain at your audience and you feed it streams of stories that constantly tell them one thing and validate their negative opinion of somebody, uh, there is a, an important counter principle to that, which is that you, you, if you challenge or confuse your audience or introduce uh, a new element, once you've gone down that road, you will lose market share in a, a case study that I like to cite about this involved the Young Turks that some folks um, uh, might be familiar with that channel. It's a sort of liberal independent news network. Uh, and the, uh, the front, uh, the, the anchor person for that network, Cenk Uger, in a documentary called All Governments Lie that I was also in about the news business, he talked about how in 2008, uh, they, the Young Turks built up its audience appealing to sort of young fans of Barack Obama. And they, they surged in popularity as Obama rode all the way to the White House. And there was an enormous uh, upswing in audience the more they talked about Obama's successful campaign. When they switched in 2009 to actually covering Obama's presidency, which required them occasionally to be negative about Obama, they lost a lot of market share. And they, they found that the more they talked about things like Obama's handling of the financial crisis, that this affected their financial bottom line. And to their credit, they continue to do that coverage anyway, but that is not a decision that most big,
corporate uh, outlets will make. In the Trump era, uh, it became possible for these big corporate outlets to avoid the problem of ever confusing or upsetting your audience at all. Really what's happened since 2016 is the news landscape is split into two different groups. There's news for people who love Trump and that's, you know, Fox and the Daily Caller and Breitbart. And then there's news for people who can't stand Trump. And that's all the other stations that you're familiar with, MSNBC in particular. And the world that's represented in these news programs now is almost exactly like Crossfire, uh, which I talked about before. Uh, you only see two different ideas. There's pro-Trump and anti-Trump. The ideas are shown to be in constant combat. There's no pretense of a hope for cooperation or, or co cooperation. And the audiences are completely, almost perfectly siloed. There was a study by the Pew Center that came out just a few weeks ago that showed that of people who identify uh, Fox as their primary news source, 93% of those people are Republicans. Uh, for MSNBC, the number is an exact mirror. It's 95% uh, Democrats. The New York Times, for the people who identify that as their primary news source, 91% of those people are Democrats. Uh, people who call NPR their primary news source, 87% of those people are now Democrats. So basically most news channels now are talking exclusively to one uh, set of uh, people or another. Uh, and while uh, I wanna stress that as a business, the news media was headed this way a long time before Trump, but we've now arrived at a place where the sort of good morning everybody model that was geared towards delivering information to the broad mean has been switched out uh, for a new model. And I had a Facebook executive describe to me what that was, in his, in, in his words, he calls it audience-optimized framing, uh, in which the job is less about delivering information than it is about targeting an audience, identifying an audience, and then finding content to match and reassure that audience uh, in regular fashion. And so, you know, when I entered the business in the 90s, I wasn't aware of any of this. My idea of journalism had been informed by watching my father when I was growing up, uh, who again was just a, a traditional television news reporter, a terrific reporter. And when I watched him working, uh, there was no hint of any business um, issue that ever entered into his calculations. He just sort of got his assignment and did it. And at the reporter level, no one from the business suite ever comes down and tells you you have to shape your copy one way or the other in order to increase sales, it doesn't work like that. Uh, but what does happen is that uh, you learn that work in the media involves a constant uh, unspoken pressure to highlight some things over others. And you learn to recognize almost more by smell than by rational thought what is and is not a story. Uh, and in my early experience, I found that some, sometimes this involved political calculations I started my career in, in uh, the former Soviet Union, and I learned early on that editors love stories about uh, American culture triumphing in the former Soviet states. So a Kentucky Fried Chicken opening in Moscow or an Ikea or the first American uh, advised stock uh, market exchange opening or an election that was held with our, with our advice. We love stories like that, stories that were not so complimentary about the results of economic policies that Russians had instituted with our help, like the loss of public health care or the loss of uh, free higher education. Um, those were not so popular and tended to get rejected. And so over time, you, you, you learn this internal processing mechanism that tells you they're going to like this, they're going to publish this, and they're not going to publish this other thing. And in books like Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, he talked about how sometimes this was a, a patriotic uh, uh, inclination that ne the networks wanted you to follow. So stories about communists murdering a Polish priest, uh, a Catholic priest in Poland, that was a story that they liked. That was, those, those were what, what he called worthy victims, but an exactly analogous story that took place in the U.S. client state, uh, like El Salvador, Guatemala, um, where priests were murdered. We didn't want to do those stories. 
And so the same thing now goes on with these, with these different demographics, but it just depends on where you work. So if you work at Fox, you're just not going to do a, a climate change story or a police abuse story. You will do a story about corruption at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Conversely, if you work at MSNBC, you probably won't do stories about uh, problems with NAFTA or Barack Obama's drone program. Uh, negative stories about the Clintons or Hillary Clinton, but you will do stories about anything involving Trump. Uh, and this is how this internal processing mechanism goes. You start to self-select for your audience. And this is primarily a, a business issue and not so much an ethical uh, or journalistic issue. And I know this sounds obvious, but I, most people think of this as a matter of politics. And it is in some cases, some cases it doesn't involve the, the views of your editors and the people who own and, and run these organizations, but it's very much also about commerce. Once you've established an approach, once you've identified an audience, departing from that approach and doing anything to upset the format will cost your company money. News editors know this, uh, news directors know this, editors know this, and the amounts of money involved are not small. You know, a company like CNN has made over a billion dollars in profits every year uh, that Trump has been in office, and there are similar numbers on the Fox side. And so there's an enormous risk here of the tail wagging the dog. Uh, news companies will make more money if they pick stories that know you, will make you upset, uh, and they know any story involving Trump is going to make their uh, audience upset, and they will avoid stories that are confusing to you, um, and they want to make sure that they can wind you up as much as they can, not just every day, but in the internet era, they, there's a commercial imperative now to do this um, every hour, every minute, really every second. It's, it's a moment-to-moment -moment competition, and the only way to really compete is to keep riling people up as, mu as, as much as you can. They use that crossfire formula of constant combat to attract audiences and, and to keep them and addict them to this, this, uh, this experience. And this can be very damaging to people's mental health to say nothing of what it does to society. And so uh, as a parting thought, I just want to leave you all with this idea that, um, you know, to recognize that when you watch the news, uh, most people think of this as a public service. And in some cases it is, but you, you really have to understand that it's also a consumer product uh, very much in the same way that uh, blue jeans or cigarettes or Twinkies uh, are a news product. And there are properties that we use to sell our product in the same way that those other kinds of consumer businesses use to sell theirs. And what we've learned is that division is the thing that sells most in this current era. And you have to understand that just as cigarettes or Twinkies can be bad for you, the news can also be bad for you. It can be bad for your mental health. It can be addicting in the same way that those products are. Uh, and so please understand that, um, you know, from our point of view, we've gone from being, you know, something that was a business, but um, more in the direction of being just about delivering information to being very, very consumer oriented uh, in the current incarnation and much more about audience and demographic targeting. And so uh, to some of you, this is going to sound obvious and to others, it'll sound outrageous and you'll disagree, but I hope you'll think about it, and um, I look forward to having a discussion and answering some questions about it. So thank you very much for having me. Great. I hope everyone is is clapping at home for Matt. Uh, it was a great uh, presentation. Certainly uh, learned learned a lot, and we've had some questions come in, and I, I want to make sure we get to those. But um, we did get some in advance that I, I want to, to pose, and I think we'll we'll start there. Um, so Matt, your, your book, uh, Hate Inc., um, drew some, some criticism from more liberal media personalities for comparisons that you drew between Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity. Um, some people characterize that as a, as a false equivalency. Um, the, and the question is, do you stand by that comparison or, or has your thinking on it changed at all since the book came out? Um, yeah, thank, thanks for that question. I do stand by that comparison and I think it, it's misunderstood. When people think that I'm comparing the content or the reporting, um, what I'm really talking about is the commercial approach and the commercial strategy of Fox and MSNBC. And you heard the numbers that I recited before. The companies are almost exact mirrors of each other. 
they do exactly the same thing, essentially in terms of how they make their money. They identify a group of people and they feed that group of people information that they know that that group of people uh, will like. They, the same thing that you see on Fox and that we used to criticize Fox for quite a lot, which is that there's never anything negative about the Republican Party. Um, actually, that's actually less true now than it used to be, uh, oddly enough, for some reason. Uh, but in the in the Bush years, for instance, there was never uh, you you could watch Fox for a thousand hours in a row and never see anything negative. Um, that same quality is now true in a lot of blue leaning media. And that doesn't mean that the facts are the same or that the reporting is equivalent, but that this is the same kind of commercial approach. We're giving you something and we're not upsetting you or confusing you. Um, it's predictable. Uh, and so that's, that's what I was talking about. Um, uh, thank you all for, for submitting your, your questions in the, in the Q&A. I'll get to them in just a second, but um, one more that we got in advance. Um, many members of, of the media have been claiming that the press is, is under attack. Uh, the, the person who asked this question said that this is true, but described the attacks as clumsy and from sycophants and buffoons about vague perceived unfairness rather than attacks rooted in social science or details. And, and so the, the question is, how do we make legitimate claims for reforming the media without emboldening those rogue agents, sycophants, buffoons, et cetera, who are trying to dismantle media credibility for their own purposes? Um, that's a great question. I really disagree with that premise. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm not going to be one of those people who, who's going to say like, back in the day, things were better. The news media had tremendous problems back in the 60s and 70s. It was almost exclusively white, exclusively male. Uh, it represented a, a one particular point of view, and, and it was often racist and, and militaristic. But one thing that was very different back then as opposed to now is that uh, people who work in the media there was an enormous class difference. Um, you know, when my father first entered the business, this was much less of a profession um, than it was like a trade. Uh, people who entered reporting were likely to be the sons and daughters of electricians and plumbers. Uh, and they didn't go to Ivy League schools and they weren't wealthy. And it was really only with my generation, and I'm sort of an example of this, when that changed. Uh, I think it was really after all the president's men came around and uh, journalism became this uh, sexy profession for people to go in uh, for the the sons and daughters of very wealthy people for the first time. And this uh, pr produced a change that I watched personally happen. Um, journalists in my father's generation were very much identified with ordinary people. Uh, they got along with them tremendously well and were very, very tuned in to what was going on with regular people. And then in my generation, there began to be this change where we started to identify more with people who are in power. If you've ever seen or read books like Primary Colors or seen that movie, I think that's kind of an archetype for what this relationship was like. We were now viewed ourselves as being kind of behind the rope line with uh, politicians and uh, more about explaining the point of view of politicians and, and the very wealthy as opposed to challenging uh, the very wealthy and the very powerful. And so a lot of those attacks that you're talking about come from ordinary people who feel like the media is not tuned in to what they're thinking. And I, this was a huge part of 2016. Trump tuned into this right away. He figured out in his speeches, I watched this happen. I was in the room when this happened, that as soon as he pointed to the journalists and started bad-mouthing us, the audiences started roaring approval because the even within these events, the class difference was was really quite obvious. You know, all of us who were sitting there with our uh, pens and papers, most of us were uh, upper class, Ivy League educated, wealthy people who lived in big cities uh, on the Western East Coast. And you know, these audiences felt that we were just not in tune with what they were thinking. And I think they were right. And the fact that news organizations, you know, like the New York Times, they admitted this after Trump was elected that, you know, we must be deeply out of touch with what's going on to miss how this could happen. 
And that was absolutely true in 2006. Nobody thought it was possible because they weren't in tune with what people are thinking. And I think that's a legitimate criticism. Mm -hmm. um, so several questions uh, came in about, you know, is there a financial incentive out there to break these cycles that you've been describing? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I'm in an interesting position now to talk about this because I've, I've kind of moved from uh, being dependent on a big legacy media organization like Rolling Stone. I, I now work mostly under a kind of subscriber model. And I found that um, it is a little bit, uh, I've always had a lot of freedom at Rolling Stone. They've always given me tremendous leeway to cover whatever I wanted. And that's relatively unheard of in the business. But even so, uh, working for yourself and being uh, uh, answering to actual readers first, as opposed to um, a boss and advertisers, is a completely different dynamic. And um, I think that's great. And I think it can function and it can probably support some of us. The difference is that I, I don't know how you can support a mass media news network that way yet. We'll have to see the only other model that could possibly work is the one where there's a very, very wealthy disinterested benefactor. And we've seen a couple of people uh, attempt that where you have a billionaire who just gives some people some money and hopefully they do a good job. But that's the only way to really truly be free of these pressures because any as soon as you have a, a corporate owned model where they actually care about the revenues and have to have it, then those pressures are going to instantaneously exist. And, and from the content side of things, does any, do any of these dynamics change if Trump is, is not reelected in November? I am, that's another great question. I'm really curious to see what will happen if he's not reelected because so much of the media now is dependent upon Trump. I, I don't know how we would, will even go back to reporting without him. Uh, most news stories somehow or other work their way back to Trump. Um, we've, a lot of people have been instructed that, that when we write our news stories, we have to start thinking about how we can put Trump into the headline. Um, you'll notice that in a lot of the sites that, um, are really geared towards audience optimization, uh, and search engines that they will always put Trump in the headline because they know that search engines will, will, will push it higher. So I don't know, I don't know how that's going to change. Um, but certainly there, it, it will take a long time to do any reversing of this uh, splitting trend that we've seen that's been so pronounced in the last four years. Right. Um, several questions uh, you know, about given that all these, these factors you've described, are there sources that, that you recommend for people who, who are looking for kind of this neither side news model or you know, something along those lines? Yes, I mean, um, there are obviously some. I think in the internet age, it's become a lot easier to create kind of an individualized news experience. Um, we do that anyway. Uh, I think that's one thing that people don't understand is that they're, oh, people are constantly self-selecting for where they get their information. Some people get their information more from movies and from uh, daytime television shows or sitcoms and they avoid the news. Some people watch the news more, uh, but in the internet age, you can actually uh, consciously go about doing that a little bit better. Um, you know, I, I try to read from a variety of sources. The first thing I try to do is read both conservative and, and Democrat leading media, um, just sort of the baseline news stories because what's happening now is that there are major news stories that simply just don't appear they'll appear on one side and not appear at all on the other which is troubling um i read a lot of foreign news media um i read the the first thing i read is you know sort of bbc or agence france press for international news the intercept i read a lot of um there there is a little bit more of that inter independent um uh, type of reporting now. Uh, and then there's a lot of sort of just great essayists and independent news writers. And that's the thing I think young people who are thinking about going into journalism should understand is that there's, in contrast to what there was when I entered the business, there are thousands of ways 
that you can uh, create content, write, uh, make things and, and have an audience almost right away now. Uh, and it's all interesting. And, um, but the worst thing is that are those big corporate outlets. If you just stick to one of them, that's when you have a problem. Yeah. And speaking of, of journalism education, um, several questions from some of our, our journalism faculty here about how they should be handling objectivity in, in how they're teaching. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I know a, a lot of my colleagues and I, we talk about that all the time. Like, what, what is objectivity? I, I never really believed it as a, um, as a serious concept. There, there are some people who, who actually believe there is, that there is a, a magical formula that, that you can do to remove bias from reporting. And I, I've always believed in the same way that people like Noam Chomsky and similarly people like Hunter Thompson, who was one of my um, idols, believe that everything you do is an editorial choice and reveals your bias. So if you put a story on page four instead of on page one, if you put the headline uh, at the top of the page instead of at the middle, if you, if you have a, a, uh, a Democrat quoted first instead of, you know, in the 15th paragraph, all these, th all these things reveal your inclinations and uh, people have actually become more attuned to this over the years. Um, so there's a difference, I think, between being between objectivity, which I think is a fictitious uh, notion that um, or semi fictitious notion that that was sort of created uh, as a brand for certain kinds of journalism in, um, you know, prior to this era and and uh, simply trying to be balanced and open-minded, which is what I, I try to do. In other words, um, you know, go into every story with an open mind, clean your slate each time, examine um, all of the questions every time you enter a new assignment, uh, and don't enter with any preconceived notions, don't think about any preconceived political ideas, and just sort of let the chips fall where they may. To me, that's kind of what being objective means. It just means um, calling things as you see them. And um, that's different from, from the formula that I'm talking about now, where it's basically predetermined how you're going to approach uh, you know, any given topic. Mm -hmm. um, several questions um, came in here about Brett Weinstein's Unity 2020 idea. Um, any thoughts you have on that? And then there was also um, one about that being blocked from Twitter and kind of more broadly where the social platforms fit into what we've been talking about. Sure. About um, Brett Weinstein's idea. I mean, I've been on Brett's show and, um, you know, he, I do like the one concept that I like that he has in his Unity 2020 platform is that the concept of it is that you would have one representative of one side and one representative of the other side, and they would be forced to come together and make some kind of accommodation. Um, you know, I, I, as an, as an actual formula for ruling, I don't know if that would actually work, but I, you know, I like the idea in the abstract because, and this is interesting because I've done a lot of work about this topic. I, I covered Congress quite a lot in the, in the two thousands, for instance. And I remember being told that, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the way that legislation got made is that the committee heads, so the ranking member on one side and the committee chair, they, they might snipe at each other during the week, but over the weekend, they would get together, they would, they would have dinner, they would sometimes play golf or whatever it was, and they would actually hash out what the pro how they were going to work together going forward. And this stopped in the early 90s, I think really with when Newt Gingrich, uh, sort of took over the House with the Republican side. Um, the enmity, which was kind of for show, uh, in part, up till that point, became real, and the two sides stopped communicating entirely. And now, except for very rare cases, one, one instance that I found, for instance, was, um, I don't know, Bernie Sanders working together with Ron Paul to do audit the Fed le legislation. That kind of thing is increasingly rare. And um, I do wish that there was more of that, 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 that there wasn't such a, um, a stigma involved with, you know, working together, even for people who have disagreements. Um, on, in terms of the platforms, the platforms are a major 
issue. And that's a completely separate issue because there's a, a big issue now with working in the news media. When I came up, the, the only thing you had to worry about was getting sued. And, um, and that was a rational, predictable process. We had a way to prepare for that. And the way to prepare for that was both to talk to lawyers before you published anything, to fact check everything, uh, to anticipate any questions, to reach out to the people that you wrote about and see what any objections that they might might have. Um, and so even if you wrote something and you got something wrong or somebody said you got something wrong, there would, there would be a process that was transparent if you knew what it was. Uh, and you know, they also, they didn't punish the speaker, they punished the speech uh, you might uh, have to pay whoever was harmed by your mistake, but you wouldn't be permanently removed from media as a consequence of that. Uh, it would just be a bad episode and it would be a hit to your reputation, but you could continue to go forward. Now what happens is there's this thing that hangs over everybody's head where, you know, you could be removed at any minute. You don't know why or for what exactly. Um, it tends to happen to smaller independent people. And I found this, it's true on both the left and the right. In fact, some of the people who've, who've gotten the worst of this are in organizations like the World Socialist website. Um, and you're constantly being, there's there are algorithms in Google, which are pushing your content up or down, depending on invisible processes. So this is like a new uh, media regulator. We've never had a media regulator in this country. Um, we've only had the court system which had a very loose standard uh, of, for speech. It was imminent incitement to violence. Uh, and then, of course, there was the New York Times v. Sullivan case, which established, you know, libel and slander and that sort of thing. That was really all we had to worry about. Now there's this entirely different dynamic, which is, I think, very scary and, um, and needs to be discussed. So I'm going to try to round up some of these into, into three more questions here as we, we wrap these up. So, um, first is this, this notion of treating both sides as equal when they're not. So, you know, for example, we, I think it's, it's fairly clear that, you know, Donald Trump is prone to xenophobia, white nationalism, these types of things. So, you know, how, how do you, how do you kind of put that in, in context or, you know, how do you think about that, you know, covering him when there's this, you know, kind of chicken and the egg problem with, with some of, of how he, he, he presents his views. Sure. I, I don't believe that you have to treat both sides equally, give both sides the same amount of time, have the same opinions about both. I do think you have to be honest about both. And, you know, that means like, for instance, in the case of Trump, when I first started writing about him, it was completely acceptable to talk about why he was succeeding. And, Trump, um, you know, I wrote about this in the first couple of stories that he, uh, that I put in Rolling Stone. Trump was uh, appealing to people across the spectrum. He was absolutely courting um, the hardcore uh, sort of white nationalist, uh, very, very far right element. But he was also courting the kind of disaffected, uh, ex-union worker, sort of Bernie Sanders voter. He constantly talked about how Bernie Sanders had the right idea, but he didn't know how to execute it. Um, he would criticize NAFTA. He criticized NATO. He talked about how we had to not get into foreign wars um, and that they were so damaging. And uh, Trump did incredibly well in areas that had a lot of veterans returning from the Middle East. So it was okay to talk about that during the campaign, but after the campaign, there became this taboo where the only thing we could say that was a reason for Trump's victory was that, um, was that, you know, he was a racist and he had appealed to racist sentiment, which I think was certainly part of what happened, but there were lots and lots of other elements that were important to talk about. And I, from my point of view, Trump was simply being an insincere salesman. He was identifying people who were maybe disaffected for real reasons who had been, uh, uh, you know, left out, uh, left behind by the system. Um, and he was offering them the world and they were responding to that. And I think that's an example of what I mean by being 
balanced, right? So you can be clear-eyed about what's happening and say, look, he succeeded because he identified something real that was going on and was an effective salesman and went after it. That doesn't mean I think he was being sincere or that he had any real solutions, but it does mean that it's okay to talk about that. And that, I think that, that's different from being, you know, both sides are equal. That, that's just being honest. Right. Um, several uh, questions here about um, why this is a, a, seems to be a uniquely American problem. Um, you, know, you know, what is it about our structure in particular and other countries obviously have you know, profit making media as well. And are there examples of, of other countries that have come through something similar to what we find ourselves in now? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that all that well because I haven't really worked. The only country that I've ever worked in, um, apart from the United States, was Russia. And I have worked in the Russian media. I've, I've written in Russian for newspapers. Um, they have a very different system than we have. Uh, but I one thing I would say is that in other countries, uh, as, a, as opposed to the United States, most other countries have some kind of tradition of public media that's very, very strong uh, or sponsored media of some kind. And to an extent, we, we have had that in the United States. There's always been a little bit of public sponsorship, you know, even going back to the, the Wild West days, you know, the U.S. Postal Service gave free uh, delivery to, on the Pony Express. Um, so there has always been a little bit of that with America. But in other countries, there's always been a very, very strong uh, national or public um, journalism tradition, and we just don't have that as much. So if you if you worked in France, uh, you might work for AFP. If it's Britain, you might work for the BBC, and they have offices all over the world, and you can be a foreign correspondent and work for that. We just don't have that as much, um, and so we're very, very wedded to this commercial model, uh, uh, much more so than anybody else. And so what what responsibility do media outlets have in spreading this idea that consuming news all the time is the way to be a good citizen or or stay informed and and what amount of news consumption is actually healthy um that that's a terrific question uh, because i actually wrote about this a lot in hate inc um so you know back in the walter cronkite's era you know, his famous sign off was, and that's the way it is, right? He would end every broadcast like that. And the concept that of that, it was very reassuring to people. And it was essentially like, I give you permission to go off and live your life until tomorrow when you will return to get, you know, another half hour of wisdom from this show. And the idea was that there is actually an acceptable time to not be paying attention to the news. Um, and, uh, Again, people who were raised in another era were used to consuming the news at most once or twice a day. I remember talking to another person in the news, newspaper business who said, remember that there used to be a time when people could actually read the news. In other words, you would start at page one and you would go all the way to the end and that was all there was to, to read and then you were done and you could go on till the next day. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And a huge, again, as I've talked about, a huge part of the formula now is making people feel like they can't for a second turn off the channel. And this is because there's an enormous commercial benefit to this. And I think the, the first really big story that capitalized on this was the Clinton Lewinsky story. That's how MSNBC became a big thing. If you present something as a, they called it the show that Keith Dilberman got made famous was White House in Crisis. Right. And so the idea was you had to tune in because at any moment it might be the end of a presidential administration. It could be Watergate. Right. Uh, and they want you to think that if you turn it off, you're going to miss it. Uh, and so that's that's the reality show element of all of this. And, and I think most news consumers aren't aware that that level of manipulation is going on. And it's very built into people who come into the media now. They're not even aware of it, but they do it. So um, I think it's very unhealthy. If you just walk down the street anywhere, you'll see people scrolling on their phones constantly and they're miserable. They hate life. And universally, when people go on vacation and they stop paying attention to the news, they're happier. Um, so I do think we need to pay less attention to the news. There's only so much we can learn and there's only so much you can do about 
So, um, you know, on that happy note, I think that that's, I think that's probably the best advice I can give people is just read us less. Yeah. Uh, one last question. Um, are you a drummer and are those your cover <laughs> stories on the wall behind you? Uh, I am a, so this is my midlife crisis that you're seeing in the background. <laughs> um, I, I, at age 50, I just started uh, playing the drums this year uh, and I'm terrible. Um, oh. But those are my, uh, some of my cover stories from Rolling Stone on the walls. Uh, and yeah, that, that, they were a gift to me from the magazine. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, to the point of, of not spending as much time looking at your phone, right? You can't read the news when you're playing the drums. So exactly. <laughs> it's good, yeah. to, good to have hobbies. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, um, sorry to all the, the, the great questions I did not get to. Um, there, there were lots of, of good ones here, but um, Matt has been very generous with his time. So thank you, Matt, for, for the talk and for, um, for answering all these questions. And thank you to all of you for being here. If you uh, missed any of the, the lecture or want to share it with colleagues, etc. You can find it on the McCourtney Institute's YouTube channel in the coming days. So uh, thank you all again. Hope to see you at uh, our events later this fall. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Jenna.